We would like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners and custodians of the lands on which we record from today, the peoples of the Kulin Nation. I also pay my respects to the elders past and present. I extend that respect to the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples here today. Source, a new podcast from Cappy, where hosts Emma Evans and Thurman Wise get to the source of our daily rituals, speaking with entrepreneurs that are changing the face of our day-to-day. From making our bed to a glass of wine and everything in between, we give you a peek into the leaders making our daily rituals serve us better, support our communities and bring positive change to our surroundings. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the final episode of season two of The Source. As always, your host, myself, Thurman. And myself, Emma. Today, we have a very special guest who's tuning in all the way from Shelter Island, the amazing Michael Ventura, author, advisor, and someone who we've recently had the chance to meet here in Australia. So, Michael, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I guess before we kind of kick off, I didn't get to meet you while you were in Australia, but um, what was the vibe? What did you think of first time here? Second time in Australia. First time was March of 2020. Literally flew home on uh, March 13th and the captain said to us as we boarded our plane, uh, if you're Australian and want to stay here, you might want to consider getting off now. And some people actually did. So flew home straight into the pandemic. And so it was nice to be back. And it was nice to be back after everything we've all been through and uh, and really sweet to to meet some new folks while being there, including you, you guys. It's so funny because I was actually on the opposite end of there. I was supposed to go back to the States in March. And I was like, oh, I feel, I have a feeling if I go back to the States, I, they won't let me back in. Mm-hmm. So I canceled my flight. I was one of those people, I suppose, that And stuck lived around. out of a suitcase for two and a half years. <laughs> well worth it, though. Yeah, well, good intuition on your part. I mean, you know, I think once uh, once Tom Hanks got sick, America got very nervous, and that you know, it's our sort of national treasure. And so <laughs> we all we all realized it was time to get home. If something bad happens to Tom Hanks, we know we're done. <laughs> I guess you know, for our listeners that might not be familiar with your work, would you mind giving a little introduction into kind of who you are and what you do? Yeah, sure. So. For the first 20 years of my career, I spent them as a entrepreneur building businesses that would go into organizations at moments of what I now refer to as transformation, change, or trauma, sometimes a little bit of all three, and help their leaders and their teams through those moments using empathy, using a variety of brand, marketing, communications, personal development, leadership development skills to help them navigate choppy waters and get to a a, a better outcome. Not to be a dumb question, but for some of our listeners that might not have an understanding of that word empathy, how would you describe it to someone so they could have a better understanding? Totally. And not a dumb question at all. In fact, it's, it's one of my favorite questions to answer because it is a misunderstood word. And so... You know, when I started the first consulting business, we never started it with the idea that that was going to be our 
our special sauce, so to speak. But over time, I realized that when we practiced empathy, it, our work was always made better. And so the important part about practicing it was really understanding it better. And it is confusing. So often people think about empathy as synonymous with being nice or sympathetic or compassionate. And while those are all very important things, they are in fact different than empathy. So empathy for me begins with a willingness to understand without judgment someone else's experience and can evolve to even include understanding without bias or as much judgment as one can remove our own interior world too. It's harder to look at ourselves bias-free, obviously, but there's practices and ways to do that where you can be more contemplative, where you can look inside and you can see what are some of those things that are holding you back. So, you know, by and large, I think that empathy is a practice of inquiry, of listening, of space holding in order to get a deeper understanding of someone else or sometimes even yourself. And did you find initially that there was like pushback or resistance or people didn't want to explore that topic? Yeah, you know, it's a good point. We didn't always sell it. Like some people want to know how the sausage gets made and others don't, right? So sometimes we would just get asked to do a piece of work and we would go to our office and work there using this practice. Other times clients very much sought us out for it and wanted to be a part of the process with us. We didn't have a preference because some people just had less of an interest in it. Mm -hmm. It didn't mean they didn't want a good outcome, but they didn't necessarily want to invest in it straight away. Other times they would get the, the work we did and then because it worked well and because it resonated, they'd see the value in it and say, maybe there is something to that. Could you tell us a little bit more about how you did that? Could you teach us? Can you take us on the ride? And so, you know, I think the outcomes are often more important to the clients, but the the inputs were what was very important to us as as the consultants and the and the solution makers in those, particularly in those early days, as we were still kind of learning our methods and rhythms in terms of how we did our work best. Just hearing you speak, like not to say it's easy to be nice because being nice can, I guess, be hard, but that level of understanding, you know, it's, it's a bit more investment to get there. Like, you know, I always find it funny. Like sometimes if I'm having a bad day and someone goes, how are you doing? And you go, you know what? Actually not that great. And you can see them go, oh, because they're not expecting it. Right. They weren't bargaining to like have a real conversation. Yeah. You just gloss over. You're like, how are you doing? How are you doing? You're like, oh, wait, but you didn't say how you're doing. You've just greeted yep. me. You know, like it really does. If you want to understand someone, you really do need to spend time or work with people like yourself that can, I guess, bring that out in the organization. Yeah. And, it, you know, it slows things down before it speeds them up. You're going to have to take those five extra minutes you didn't bank on. If I asked you that and you said, you know, not so great, actually. Well, now I'm going to look like a jerk if I just walk away, right? So now I've got to ask follow-up questions and I've got to understand, well, is there anything I can do to help? Do you want to talk about it? Do you want to take a walk? And, you know, those kinds of things people aren't always up for 
And yet those are the things that build connection, that build stronger relationships, that actually get us to more meaningful connection with people. So there's a bit of a responsibility on the question asker to know that, you know, if you open this this drawer, you have to be prepared to encounter whatever's inside. Yeah. And I guess it's like we live in a society where we've just gotten so used to doing some of those things. It's just like willy nilly. I'm going to open that drawer. I'm going to open that drawer. If I don't like what's in there, it's okay. Move to the next. The way social media has sort of encouraged us to treat each other's information in a sort of bite-sized and often disposable way does have a knock-on effect in a way to bleed into our more personal relationships. We think we can just, you know, like swipe up on someone's content in the real world and like, that doesn't work that way. And it's hurtful and it doesn't make for great relationship building. And I guess for our listeners as well, you have written a book, Applied Empathy Leadership. And I think what's really interesting kind of about this conversation of curiosity is that there are examples in the book about real, I guess, business cases, which I found really interesting. You know, one example being Levi's and Thurman and I often are banging our head against the wall when we're working with consultants or agencies because when they can come into conversation, it can just be all about the budget. Like that's the first element of the question. Like how big is your marketing spend? Yet when I was reading your book from a just pure business angle of solving problems with empathy, you were really trying to understand the customer or understand the problem and had such a high level of curiosity and then it was just interesting to read because then you could yield the results. So in a way, you really are challenging, you know, the model of what, or previously when you were at Subrosa, like what people were doing, because we have not experienced that when it comes to working, I guess, with externals, that they approach it with that level of curiosity. Yeah, you know, it's interesting to be on the sort of sell side, if you will, of those kinds of conversations, because there's lots of ways to solve a problem, right? There's a small, medium, large to almost any challenge that gets put in front of you. So if you're going to let the budget dictate the solution, you're going to limit the potential outcomes. And often if we went the other way and said, well, let's talk about the problem. Let's understand it more fully. Let's also go talk to people for whom this is a problem that are not in the room, right? Let's go talk to your customers or your consumers or whoever it might be. And in doing that, we would learn a lot and then be able to come back and talk about options, talk about you know what I would often refer to as the different levers in, in the machine, right? And so like, if we want to solve this problem for you, we can really dial this up. We could really dial this up. We could dial up all four of these things, but you know, all of them are going to drive costs. So let's be mindful of how we turn all the dials and knobs and levers here so that we ultimately determine which ones are the right recipe for this, for this problem we're off to solve. And then you co-create. And that's when the work is at its best. It's, you know, when we're actually talking together and weighing our options and debating what might work one way versus another way and coming to a solution that feels right-sized, then budget is sort of a, an outcome of that process, not a, not a dictator of the process. Well, I guess it's also just like, it's just really taking that holistic approach, you know, having and you know, looking at something in its full being, not focusing in, like you said, on that. You can look at one specific thing or you can talk to one specific person but the solution that you might get, might it might solve it for a day, might solve it for a week, but is it going to solve it 
ongoing? Probably not. Right. And a good consultant, in my opinion, is always someone who is mindful of the fastest path to their own obsolescence. You know, if you've got to pay a consultant forever, they're probably not solving your problems well enough. And our best clients, I've worked with some of our best clients for 12, 15 years, but they were in peaks and valleys because it was never the same problem. We solved that problem. They were happy with the way we solved it. And in four months, when a new problem popped up, the phone rang again. And that's the right way, in my opinion, to do this kind of work is to be the person that can be relied upon to fix and get out of the way so that they can get on with their jobs. And you can work on new opportunities as well. That's right. Yeah. That's, I mean, the, by virtue of being a consultant, you tend to be more of a generalist than a specialist anyway. And I've loved that aspect of this kind of work because I can go into a law firm and talk with them about culture change. And then I can turn around and four days later be with a manufacturing business and then four days later be with a CPG business. And there are learnings in each of those that translate to each other that those folks in those businesses don't get exposure to because they're vertically in their category and focused on that, which they have to be in order to do their job well. But if I can bring some external knowledge and some you know, stuff I've learned on the various battlefields into every one of these conversations, we get you know a little more well-rounded each time. Speaking of experience, one of the questions I was most excited to kind of ask you today, and Emma and I talk a lot about, I guess, the few, like where we are now, where are things going, the future. And on one side, you hear, you know, a lot of negativity about social media, oh, technology, everything is so instant. And I imagine that our parents probably had this conversation, our grandparents, you know, there's always the, oh, it's the television, it's the, the telephone. But then on the other side, you know, there's people like yourself that are really making an effort to shift culture, to shift how we work, and in somewhat shift how we live. You know, I guess on one side of the fence, it seems like the world is a dumpster fire. But on the other side of the fence, it seems like there's a lot of hope. And in your 20 years of experience, how do you see the landscape at the moment? You know, are you stressed when you wake up? Are you excited? Obviously, there's peaks and valleys. Everything is different. But yeah, I think the fence is like it's it's like a chain link fence where you can see both sides pretty clearly these days, right? You know, it's not opaque. And the challenge is that things are not going to slow down. You know, I think about Moore's law and how you know talks about the fact that processor speed will will double over 18 months, right? So we've we've lived in a world where things have gotten smaller and faster technologically speaking roughly every 18 months. The same is true about us as humans, uh, not necessarily getting smaller, but our processing power is increased. Our access to information is faster. Our ability to digest information and get answers to questions is massively more efficient than it was even five years ago. And I was talking about this just a couple of nights ago with some friends where I am of a generation, I'm not a dinosaur, right? I'm um, 42 years old, but I am of a generation that when we were coming up in high school, we didn't have email and we didn't have in, like we had like dial up, but like it wasn't like a functional thing at school. It was a thing that like you'd use to like go on 
instant messenger or chats at the end of the day. Like I had a wall in my parents' house that had encyclopedias because they're what, like I used this in a conversation with someone, a, a younger person recently, I talked about an encyclopedia and they were like, oh, like Wikipedia. And I was like, Wikipedia is named <laughs> after this other thing you don't even know about. And that's okay because with Wikipedia, you can have an answer to any question you have instantaneously. You can pretty much find out almost anything within a couple searches. And so there's a real benefit to that if we're responsible with it. But because of the ubiquity of information, there's also shades of information, right? People talk about how there are different kinds of facts, quote unquote, that people are using to substantiate their views. And I think what empathy shows us is that while, yes, there are facts, there are also facets to a lot of this stuff and facets have different angles. And my view on that set of facts may be different and it might be colored by the news sources I read or the people I follow or the conversations I engage in and someone else's may be skewed in a different direction based on theirs. And so what empathy does is it creates a willingness for us to have a hopefully non-judgmental space where we can discuss those facets and talk about how this is how I see the world, this is how you see the world, as long as your views and mine don't inhibit our ability to live our lives peacefully and fully, then we should be allowed to have them, right? It's when people's views start to color policy, when people's views start to color rights and start to take those away from other people that we get into a lot of trouble in this world. And I don't see us getting out of it instantaneously, but I am heartened by, you know, we're recording this in mid-November after the U.S. elections have just taken place. And the only reason the U.S. did not turn into a, you know, a, a much more totalitarian world, we're still not great right now, but much more than it, than we could have been, is because of a younger generation who has access to more information and got up and voted for the first time. And so I'm really grateful for the speed at which people are processing, understanding, and making choices at a younger age because it's helping us have a more informed population to make hopefully better choices for all of our future. Yeah. Thank freaking goodness. My gosh. <laughs> I actually, I'm going to get this wrong. I've, I should have had this written down. I've just been on annual leave and I read a book by Jane Goodall because I wanted to just kind of like step outside of my normal reading about hope. And she said there was a statistic or something about like 61% of your population is age between like 19 and 30. And so the time is coming like where there's just so much influence from the younger generation and it's just going to take, you know, cycles and, and seeing it that way about a whole different range of topics, but it did speak about the political landscape as much as it spoke about climate, I thought was really interesting to kind of go, okay, well, the, it's, the majority will shift at some point um, for the voice. That's right. I mean, if you look at what the conservative angle in America is from a political standpoint, like what's holding on, it's old white cis heterosexual men who are afraid of losing power. and look, if history is any indicator of the future, they haven't done that great of a job. So, you know, it's time to maybe loosen that grip and let some other people in who have better, more progressive views. And that doesn't mean that a conservative doesn't have a role to play in our country. Of course they do, but not when they start to limit the rights and, and, the, and the lives of, of the majority of people in our country or the world. But I suppose on that, you know, and I guess... 
not to get too political, but when people feel threatened, they hunker down, you know, and, and like, even when you're speaking about the youth, the vote is behind how we vote, all the things around it, you know, it's like restricting how you can vote in this day and age where technology is making everything better. You have a space where you're trying to preserve it as in like paper ballots only mm -hmm. like my goodness. Yeah. But I think what's also funny on, on that, you know, I guess talking a bit about politics and talking about empathy, I was back in the States a couple of weeks ago and I overheard these two guys talking about politics and their views. And it was very negative and it was very about, you know, I guess it was policies that would restrict people's lives and, and really challenge their unhappiness. And I, I got so angry and I just wanted to say like, do you even know what you're talking about? But I stopped myself and I was like, you know what? The better question is, why do you feel that way? What happened in your life where you feel that immigration is negative? Why is it that you feel that you need to have the right to a gun? What has got you to this opinion? Because if I try to tell you you're wrong or if I try to tell you that you're, I disagree with you, we're not going to go anywhere. But if you really, and, and what a hard question to ask someone, why, why do you feel that way? Yeah. I'm so glad you mentioned that because there is an innate tendency in a lot of people when they meet or encounter someone who has a view different than their own to convert them or win in the conversation. And it takes extra effort to ask the kind of question you just described, which was a neutral question. Where did you first come to that point of view? Can you tell me more about that? Have you always believed that? Who else in your family thinks that way, right? Those kinds of questions carry no judgment. They're just innately curious and seeking to understand. And what we can often encounter when asking questions like that is after three or four of those, the other person might discover they don't have much of a basis for what they believe in. They've just kind of not given it that much thought or they've given it enough thought to go along with whatever the people they socialize with believe in because they don't want to ruin their social life or their family life. And, you know, next week in the U.S. is Thanksgiving, which a lot of families will sit around a table with very different views from each other and there will be arguments and there will be discomfort. And so... One of the things that I've often been encouraging people of in, in recent weeks, and actually this week we'll be running a training to do this is sort of like Thanksgiving prep training, is how do you sit at the table and ask those kinds of questions without judgment, without implicitly embedding your view in it and saying like, I can't believe you think that way. Why do you think that anyone should be able to, right? Some fill in the blank, right? Then all of a sudden my guard goes up, my heels dig in, and now we're having an argument versus... Help me understand why you think this way. Very different responses to those kinds of questions. Yeah. And it's also kind of funny to see them thinking about, there's always a thing of like, you should never talk about politics or religion. And it's like, what? Those are great topics if you talk about them in the right way. Exactly. And whether we like it or not, particularly in the US, but in other parts of the world as well, look at what's happening in Iran right now. Politics and religion are interwoven and inescapable. 
and consequential if we don't talk about them. So, you know, we, it's incumbent upon us to have hard conversations in this day and age. Well, and everything is connected. I've been obsessed with this podcast called The Rest is History. And it's, if anyone's listening and you like history, The Rest is History, holy, I've listened to like 40 hours in the last two weeks. But they were talking about how most people that really love history do not want to talk about or, or have an aversion to religion and sport because it's like, no, I like facts. And they're doing a, a special on the World Cup. And they're like, we're not going to talk about the games. We're going to talk about the political and cultural impact of soccer in the history and it's crazy how something that you would just think is just a game has had such a political significance in the development of so many countries and people. It's like everything we do is to some degree political or cultural or yeah, it's just so wild. Yeah. I mean, in last year's football season, I'm not much of a football spectator, but you know, the, the most talked about football player in America last year was Colin Kaepernick who didn't play. Right. He was talked about for doing something that got him kicked out of the league. And that to me is you know, a perfect example of how the zeitgeist is driven by the things we pay attention to the most. And, and in a lot of societies, it's sport. So I'm going to take a right hand turn here. <laughs> but I'm curious, so much of your role, Michael, is, I guess, like putting energy out, whether you're advising or writing or speaking. So what we love to talk about is rituals or how you prepare yourself for a better tomorrow. So I have a feeling you have a few rituals or some that you've been doing for a really long time, but would love to know kind of, I guess, how you prepare yourself for moments or the day each day. Great question. So I didn't always have healthy ones. I guess I could start by <laughs> saying that in my 20s, a lot of my coping was unhealthy and I learned through a lot of challenging times and, and sort of poor choices for my well-being, what ultimately felt good in the short term, but wasn't sustainable in the long term. And that's a topic for a different day. But nonetheless, I think what I came around to is, you know, I have a very addictive personality and that can be a blessing or a curse. And it started off as a curse because I was using the wrong things and spending the wrong time with things that I started to develop addictive personality around. And then I said to myself, well, if I could bring that same willingness to be sort of stuck with or leaning on a thing to something that's helpful, what would that be? And the first thing that entered my life that stuck was a practice of Qigong which is a Taoist practice, uh, very movement and breath-based. Think of it as moving meditation, but also sort of like in, in some analogous way, like a standing form of yoga, right? So there are poses that are stretching organs and, and stimulating chi, enervating chi throughout the body, moving energy throughout the body in order to help you get increased circulation, increased flexibility, increase awareness, increase your calm. And so... I learned pretty early on in practicing it that if I gave myself permission to miss a day, I would give myself permission to miss many days. And so I don't miss days now. You know, the first couple of years I missed days or I would do some and then stop for a while and then have to like talk myself into getting back on the horse. 
I haven't missed a day in probably about 10 or 12 years. Yeah, I stopped counting at a certain point because it doesn't matter anymore. I just don't miss a day. And I, you know, even if I'm sick in bed, I will get out of bed for at least 15, 20 minutes and I will do it miserably so that I don't have an excuse to say, well, I missed that day. I guess I could miss this day too. So Qigong kind of became the first and is definitely a foundation for me. I do it every day. It's one of the first things I do when I wake up, including also just like a little stretching, some meditation. And some, this is a word that is sometimes polarizing, but also some prayer. And what I mean by that is, you know, I'm not like asking for stuff and I'm not reciting a thing I learned as a young Catholic kid growing up in, in New Jersey. But I basically said to myself one day, well, what would a prayer sound like if I just wrote one for myself? And so I just started writing these little prayers that I stick with for a little while. And then when it feels like I need a new one or my life has entered a new chapter, I just write a different one. And I'll say them. And that repetition and that mindfulness and that connection to those words and what they mean to me is very private, but also very meaningful. And so I've done that every day for a long time too. I spend a good amount of time with my dogs because they are you know, pure love and kindness at every turn. I have dinner with my wife pretty much every night and we sit and we talk about our day. I try my damnedest to not be on a device in the hours before bed. Does that always happen? No, that's a tougher one for me because it's also a way that I kind of mentally check out. And so it is a nice way to wind down sometimes. But, you know, those are some of the things that I I would say I have some ritual around that keep me steady. I also have a really important commitment to being out in nature on a very regular basis. It doesn't mean I have to like go to the far corners of the world. It might just mean I go for a slow walk in a place where there are trees and less cars and people. And when we lived in New York City, it was harder, but it was still doable. And we didn't have to like go too far to get it done. You could just walk to the river and look out away from everybody. And all of a sudden you're looking at water and it's not so bad. I might not go for a swim. Yeah. <laughs> and now that we've moved out here to this uh, place a couple hours outside of New York, you know, nature's a, a, a much more accessible. And I think that that's been a really great benefit of COVID is kind of getting a untangled from the the need to be in a city seven days a week with that that daily practice you know i guess going back around what you do and and teaching people about empathy are there any daily practices that that you would suggest i think you know obviously like your daily rituals are very personal and, and getting out to nature might not be for everybody maybe it's playing the guitar but are there like little daily rituals if someone wanted to work on, on, on maybe finding a bit of balance or, or finding a way to be more understanding of others? Mm-hmm. So I think journaling is a great one. If you like journaling, that's great. If you don't, I would encourage you to try it again and try it in different ways because there's lots of ways you can do it. There are certainly journals and, and apps that have prompts that'll ask you a thing, right? So it doesn't have to be just a blank page staring at you. But I think writing is a practice that we're losing touch with as a society. We type a lot more than we write. And something about writing is actually really helpful to me and to I know a lot of other folks because it, you know, it encourages you to to kinesthetically experience your thoughts in a way that sometimes is is not the same as typing and certainly not the same as just thinking them. 
One other thing that I do in that sort of morning practice that I have is I'll just sit in meditation and contemplation with, with the question, what is it I need to hear right now? And I will tell you almost every day I hear something. And it's like, it's just a little piece of advice that my intuition, when everything else gets quiet, decides to sort of whisper to me that says like, you know, be a little kinder to that person today, or, you know, listen a little better, or take an extra breath before you respond to that, whatever it is, like there, there will be advice that's sort of waiting just on the precipice of your like frontal lobe, that if you can just cool that thing off a little bit and give it some time and space to know that like your intuition has a place in this conversation and you're here to listen to it, it'll tell you what you need to hear. I was listening to another podcast and there's this quite controversial figure. I believe his name's Graham Norton. He's like a, wait, maybe it's not Graham Norton. It's Graham, Graham something. I apologize for not getting his name right. But he was talking about how our egos like in this day and age, we're, we're in survival mode all the time. We wake up. I need to go to work. I wake up. I need to go to coffee. It's like we're, we're moving so fast. And in generations past, we were a little bit more mindful. We took that pause to listen to ourselves. And it is sometimes, you know, the first thing you do when you wake up, you think, I got to get to work or I need to get to the train. Those little pauses can be so, so incredible or really give you the best idea or best information from within. Absolutely. I used to have a hard time doing Qigong every morning and I would tell Master Ru, my, my Qigong teacher at the time, Master Ru, I just, I, I can't do it every morning. I just, you know, sometimes I wake up and I just, I, I've got to run to work and, you know, I'm busy. And, and he just looked at me in the most like matter of fact, like wizardly way. And he just smiled and he said, wake up earlier. <laughs> And I was like, oh, yeah, I could just do that, too, and like give myself an extra 45 minutes for me. But you know, implicit in that was I wasn't prioritizing myself. Or I was prioritizing sleep. And why was I prioritizing sleep? Because I wasn't taking care of myself the day before. And so I was run down and tired. And so I needed more. So you know, like it, it all stacks. So if we're taking better care of ourselves overall, we can create the spaciousness, have more time for ourselves, which seems counter intuitive but actually kind of work works that way in the end i can't remember who said it but someone said the best time to start a habit is when you're too busy because then there's no excuse right you just get it done and i was like i had to pick up the pieces of my brain when i heard that i was like <laughs> oh my god it's funny because i feel like i'm having so many like aha moments just through this conversation where yesterday i was really i think like over trying to solve a problem and to Michael's point, like I, I almost had to have a chat with myself last night and be like, you just need to create space. Like you, if you were going to solve it, you would have already solved it. Like if with your mind, like sitting there analyzing everything and you just need to create some space and the penny will drop or an idea will come and it's taking all of my control to not grab my notepad sitting next to me and write it down. But We'll get there because yeah, it's like you need to almost have post-it notes sometimes to remind you about the rituals as well of like just go for a walk or take a breath or take a minute because it actually it helps so much. And remember that you, know, you don't have to hold it all in your head all the time. I am like the king of sticky notes notepads, text pads in my phone, emails I send to myself. I have like, you know, 
like little breadcrumbs of things I leave for myself everywhere because I don't want to have to remember stuff. And I don't want to have to hold a hundred important ideas or follow-ups. And, you know, if you find a system that works for you and stick with it, it really does help. Like folks who listen to this won't see the psychosis of this, but I'll describe it for them. But for the two of you, you can see like my whole wall is just covered in notes because that's how I can sit here and talk and look up and see the stuff that I need to remember. And it's all just sitting there for me. So, you know, whatever system works for you, just it doesn't have to work for everybody. Just dig into it. Good advice. That's a beautiful wall, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Just get a few frames. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, they change all the time. That's the thing. I'm taking them down and putting them up. So that's part of the, uh, the chaos, but it's at least chaos outside of my head. And is that a part of, I guess, like the book writing process as well? I need to do stuff physically, yes. Like when I... As I'm writing this next book, I have printouts and piles of research and different topics, and I'm kind of marking them up and shuffling pages because if it all just sat on like a air table or something like that, I don't think I would be as efficient. I, I kind of need to sit with it. I need to take it with me and like go sit outside with it a little while, or I need to like read it in bed before I fall asleep some days, or, you know, like they're kind of, they're better when they're sort of mobile. One, I guess, question that is, you know, I think our audience really loves to hear is, I mean, obviously you're very, you're very wise. Dare I want to call you a wizard now? <laughs> we have Michael Ventura coming in from New York, wizard of empathy. But, you know, along the way, you know, who have been some important teachers or, or people that have inspired you to be where you are today? There are plenty. The ones that I think always come to mind for me the most are the ones who were able to see me for the person I could be, not the person I was. And that includes my wife. That includes Master Rue. That includes a man named Gil Barreto, who was a spiritual teacher that I got to spend close to 10 years with before he passed in my 20s and early 30s. There's a handful of of really important people in my life who never saw me that that all saw me at some of my worst points, but never assumed that that's where I would stay. And always instead saw me for the potential to be something better. And they weren't all kind in the way they pointed that out, because I don't think I would have responded well if they were all kind. And so sometimes it took for me tough love to learn how to grow. And, you know, I think a lot of folks kind of have a desire to be coddled through growth. And I think that that's a slow, that's a slower road to take. Yeah. So hard as well when you're like, I'm sure you experience it when you're on the other side or like in my position as a leader, sometimes again, to just catch yourself and be like, oh, I think this is a growth moment for that person. And I have to let them sit in the mud right now. I can't save them. Yeah. I was a big fan of, I've had several folks over the years who worked on my teams and what I would use as a metaphor, and if this works for anyone who's who's listening, please use it. I would talk about how I see you standing at a threshold right now, where what is on the other side of this threshold looks like A, B, C, D, right? And I would describe like what the change that I could foresee for them being. And I would say, you have every right 
to choose to not step through that threshold or to step through it. But if you don't, it's going to impact how we work together. Like I'll give you a perfect example. There was someone who really wanted to be a creative director at one point and they were an excellent designer. And I said, I want you to realize that once you become a creative director, you're not going to design anymore. You're going to be in a lot of meetings and you're going to be managing designers. And if you want to do that, I'm here to help you do that. And I will help you become a better manager because I know you're not a great manager right now. You've told me that. I've seen it. We get it. But if what you're doing is just chasing the title or chasing the salary bump, I'll give you the salary bump to keep the job. Would you like to make what a creative director makes and continue being a designer? Because if so, I'm willing to do that because it will cost me more to replace you as a designer. So if it's really just about the money, tell me. And sometimes people would take the money and say, you know what? You're right. It was, I didn't realize that that's all it was. It was, or like, it was really just like, I wanted to tell my friends that I'm a creative director. (laughs) And so, you know, so go tell your friends you're a creative director. I don't care. You know, but like do what you're great at doing. Don't leave it just because you have some ego thing that you're trying to figure out. We'll print you new business cards. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's so funny though, because listening to you and Emma just even have this chat. So it's like Emma and I not only are podcast hosts and friends, but Emma is also like my leader or my boss. And so even when you were saying, Emma, about you can see people be in that moment, I'm like, oh, my God, I've been in that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've had that moment with Emma so many times where I'm just like. And you know what's funny and interesting is that Emma and I have had that moment, too. But it's it's sometimes very difficult for us at the helm to go through those moments because there's not always someone nudging us through the threshold. And so I have a lot of empathy for leaders who are sort of going through this. I had a, I had a really wonderful professional coach for a while that I worked with while I was going through a particular time in my business where I needed some external help. And her URL is lonely at the top. And it was like, this is so perfectly named because she kind of, she knew exactly what she was doing as, you know, an exec coach. She was like, once you get, to a certain level in your career, there's there's fewer people to help guide you through it. And so just because of hierarchy doesn't mean you can't be supportive to each other in different directions too. Well, and it's also funny because you guys have all the answers. <laughs> or at least that's what... <laughs> you know what I mean? Though? Like, that's the thing. Like, it's always one of the funny things. And I think like when I started at Cappy, I, I met Emma as a consultant. So I was very exterior. And it is funny, you know, when you can be a fly on the wall on how people react with folks like you guys, because you can solve all the problems, you've got all the answers, and that's the way it goes. It's almost like people forget you're human. So I'm going to offer a take on that. We are required to choose an answer to keep the thing moving, but it's not always the right answer. And so there are many times where I've gone home at night and not slept because I made the wrong answer, but I had to have an answer because the trains have to stay on time. And so there's no omniscient sort of like moment that happens. You kind of often just fall into leadership. And then in order to keep things moving, you have to take 
calculated risks and make the best decision with the information you have in order to keep things moving. But it is a difficult territory to swim through at times because you know with a little more time, a little more information, a little more fill in the blank, maybe you'd get to a better answer. But also, there's only so many hours in a day and leading a company and a team is often the amalgamation of problems and their mitigation. And on any given day, you're going to get a pile of problems on your desk. And it's like, I got to get rid of all these problems today. So you got to prioritize and, and chop through them. Yeah. My week this week has been really interesting because I've come back from two weeks annual leave. And I actually really thought about it when I was kind of filtering through everything before Monday and was like, okay, how am I going to approach this week? Like everyone else hasn't been on annual leave. Everyone else is not like as rested as I am and has all these new, I don't want to come in like charging with new ideas. I know that some people will come charging at me with, you know, crises or, or, or things. And I don't want to just shut it down. Like, but I don't think I, I'd ever actually thought about that transition, even just in that super micro way of like, I've been away they haven't been, I'm coming back. I'm their leader. They're all like, you know, even Thurman was sending me my messages. Like I've got so much to tell you. And I was like, what, oh, I wonder what that means. <laughs> is it good? Is it bad? Is it like, you know, is it going to be Monday 9am? It's just like every, there's a line at the office. Like, but yeah, like a few years ago, I would have probably not even given that any thought. I would have just dived into the week. I will say on that note, there was times I wanted to text you about other, like other things but I was like no Emma needs time because I bet she's getting messages from everybody no actually I, I turned all my notifications off that I had thankfully a few highlighters in my bag and a book and pens and there was a mishmash of notes that sounds great still making my way through them but we'll get there I think as we've had a beautiful conversation and we're getting close to that time where we must go one final question though, and I think, you know, it's a little bit to what we were talking about is, you know, what are the things that are making you hopeful for tomorrow? And in that, you know, are there any people, are there any brands, are there any teachings that are really inspiring you right now? That's a big question, but. No, but it's a, it's a good one. You know, it's funny. I, I'm upset that I don't have an immediate quick answer for that. Like, oh, go read this book or, oh, this is someone I'm really paying attention to right now. But maybe to back it up a half stop, I am optimistic. I am chronically optimistic. And I think that that is a blessing or a curse, depending on how you look at it. But I, for me, optimism and hope that we will always be even though it may feel like ups and downs in the day to day uh you know when we zoom out to the year to year i think societally is still trending upward and to the right like we are we are hopefully still going where we want to go although it may feel bumpy at times for me the last couple months have been very much about listening. I've traveled more in the last two months than I probably have in the last two years just because of COVID. And so like in the last two months, for whatever reason, everything decided to be in person again. And so I've been on four continents and over 20 cities in less than 60 days. And it's been great to just listen and to see how people are coming back out of their 
pandemic lives and feeling hopeful again and wanting to connect and meet people and trade ideas and collaborate. And I will say everywhere I've been, that is the thing I have felt the most. So there's not like some sage on a stage somewhere that I'm going to say, go watch this person's talk. I'm actually going to say, go talk to the people that are in your neighborhood cafes and go talk to the people who you don't speak to enough at, at your office and call your friend you haven't talked to in two months and ask them how they're doing. Because all of these people that I have seen and connected with in that way lately are all feeling positive and good at the moment. Now, of course, there are going to be exceptions to that rule, but it feels like the world is kind of turning a corner and getting out of the malaise of the pandemic. And people are hopeful and looking to do stuff and make stuff and create and collaborate and smile and have fun again. And, uh, and if we're doing that, then I think that puts the right fuel in the, in the tank for other things to happen too. On December 31st, I'm going to replay that little <laughs> bit before the new year. I want to go into 2023 with that, that mindset. It's, I think that was just so well and it's beautifully put. That is the vibe out. People want to be better. Yeah. And much like we were saying about that threshold, like you might be the person who gives a friend or a colleague or stranger a nudge to walk through it, or you may just give them the permission to do it for themselves, right? Like not everyone's going to get a permission slip. So if you're listening and you're waiting for permission, you have permission. Go and just do it because life is short and we only get a couple of revolutions around the sun. So you might as well have some fun and grow. Well, I'm going to have an amazing day. <laughs> Good. You know, get ready for what you're walking into here at the office. Okay, I'm ready. <laughs> well, Michael, thank you so, like, so, so much. I think it was such a beautiful way to close out our second season. And this has been such a special chat. And yeah, thank you again. Hope to see you in Australia next year. Me too. Thank you both. I really appreciate you inviting me to have a chat. Well, everyone, thank you so much for listening to the almost final episode of season two. It's been such a beautiful, beautiful collection of guests. So we'll be doing a wrap up episode in two weeks to give our feelings, our thoughts, some of our best moments. Yeah, I might need to re-listen to some of the episodes. Like it's been a journey. I've really enjoyed, I've enjoyed every season, but this season we've just had some amazing conversations and covered some great topics. Absolutely. So as always, thank you so much for listening. If you do enjoy what you heard, share it, like it, add it to some form of playlist or whatever it is that we're doing these days. And until next time, ciao. Bye.